It's only rock and roll podcast with host Don Demuccio. All right. And thank you, Alexa. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And yes, I am the show's master of ceremonies, producer, choreographer, and bathroom attendant, Don Demuccio. And today we're changing things up just a little bit on It's Only Rock and Roll. I'm flying solo without benefit of a co-host because we have an amazing musician with so much to talk about. I just want to get right to him. I've been seeing and hearing our guests starting from the time I was about nine years old in 1980 when I went to see the Blues Brothers movie. And from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremonies to the Winter Olympics, he's played on over 4,000 TV appearances, 3,000 commercials, and countless recordings. In fact, here's just a small sample of some of his work. guest today is among the most prolific and in-demand sidemen of the rock era. From saxophone and trumpet to tuba and his specialty, the trombone, he's appeared on thousands of albums by artists like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Frank Zappa, Paul McCartney, and the band. He spent 10 years as first an arranger and later the musical director of Saturday Night Live, and 22 years with the CBS Orchestra on The Late Show with David Letterman. But many will remember him best on the big screen as a member of Brothers Jake and Elwood's show band and review in the 1980 classic motion picture The Blues Brothers, a very real band for which he had recorded and toured with since 1978. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, a man far too distinguished to be talking to me, Tom Bones Malone. How you doing, Don? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure is all mine. And I think everybody wants to know, when are Murph and the Magic Tones getting back together? Oh, we're getting the band back together. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, world tour. Coming to a Howard Johnson's near me. <laughs> Holiday ends everywhere. Oh, okay, there you go. I'm dating myself with the Howard Johnson's reference. 28 flavors. <laughs> exactly right. Well, talk about your early years a little bit. I know you were born in Hawaii. You come from a military family. My father was a U.S. Navy pilot who survived Pearl Harbor. That's amazing. I was born uh, in 1947 in Honolulu at Kapiolani Hospital, 
uh, same hospital that Obama was born in. Really? And my, my birth certificate looks exactly like his. <laughs> the, the, the hospital doesn't exist anymore, but uh, I was born there and my little brother was born there in, in 54 also. We lived different places all over the place. We lived in Hawaii, Seattle, uh, Orange County, California, mm. Tuxent River, Maryland, on the base in Pensacola. Yeah. Uh, my father retired when I was 11 and bought a farm in South Mississippi. Both of my parents were originally from South Mississippi, from George County. So my dad bought a 240-acre farm, and we started milking cows, hauling hay, uh, picking corn, uh, growing all our food. Uh, it was a whole different way of life. I bet. Yeah. So I started sixth grade in Summerall, Mississippi. Uh, it was a small rural school that went from first grade to 12th grade all in the same school. Wow. Uh, so they had a 28-piece marching band that was grades 4 through 12. So my class in the sixth grade, uh, the window of the class looked out on the football field, and the band would rehearse for the football games uh, that were on Friday night. So there was something about the sound of the band appealed to me. One day on the public address system at the school, they said, uh, anybody wants to be in the band, come to the band hall Thursday night and bring your parents. So I showed up there with my parents and my older brother. The guy from the instrument store had all the instruments on display. I picked up a trombone and I could almost play it. So my dad asked the guy how much it was. And he said, uh, he told him the price of the horn. He said, we can't afford it. So we're walking out. Yeah. And the band director grabs me and he says, look, the school has a tuba. You can play the tuba. You don't have to buy anything. You want to play the tuba? And I said, sure. So uh, I took the tuba home that summer, learned how to play it, and started marching in the band in the fall in the seventh grade. Uh, so we got a new band director, and he was a trombone player, a professional trombone player. He was the president of the Musicians Union in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, that was 18 miles away. Yeah. He saw me looking at his trombone and said, you want to play that, don't you? And I said, yes. So he showed me where the positions were, gave me a beginner book, loaned me his personal professional trombone, wow. and said, go home and learn how to play it. So I did. And I was first chair in about three weeks. Uh, My so, God, you learned that fast? You were just able well, to pick it up? Well, the music wasn't that difficult. And I, but I, understood, I understood the correlation between the uh, valve on the tuba and yeah. the slide positions on the trombone. So uh, I, I figured it out pretty quickly. And, you know, of course, the music wasn't that difficult. But even with the tuba, did somebody sit down with you at some point and no. you just picked it up yourself? Well, I, I took this beginner book home and learned the fingerings and, yeah. and uh, learned how to read music. Wow. So, uh, and then my grandmother... Rest in peace. Gave me $100 out of her social security to buy a trombone. Wow. Yep. So now when I'm about 14, some kids come over to my house, a couple of guitar players, drummer, yep. sax player. They said, we're going to start a rock and roll band. Do you want to be in it? And I said, yeah. This is 1961. So uh, I got out my trombone and they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and, and I said, what's up? And they said, you don't have trombones in rock and roll bands. And I said, why not? They said, you just don't. Mm. Well, well, what am I supposed to do? I want to be in a band. I want to hang with the guys. I want to meet girls. So my saxophone player friend had a tenor and an alto with him that night. So he started showing me how to play the tenor sax, started showing me the fingerings. And uh, we actually worked out two or three horn arrangements that night. I really wanted to be in the band. and I really wanted to uh, you know, meet girls and hang with the guys. Sure. So I, I, I was motivated to learn how to play this instrument. Oh, yeah. And we were playing gigs in about three weeks. So first gig, the guitar player leans over to me in the middle of a song and says, play a solo. And I said, what am I supposed to play? And he says, anything you want. 
So I jumped in there and I quickly realized that certain notes sounded better than others. Mm. So I, I started uh, uh, thinking about, well, what key are we in and, and uh, uh, what chord are we playing on? And uh, that was my introduction to improvisation. I just kind of like throwing a baby into the swimming pool and they learn how to swim on their own. Well, that's kind of me with sure. the saxophone. Were you listening to people like King Curtis at all? And uh, I was listening to a little bit of radio. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere. We could only pick up three radio stations at night. And one was in New Orleans. It mm -hmm. played New Orleans music. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty hip back then. Uh, and we, another station was in Memphis where they were playing the new Memphis soul music. And another station was in Arkansas that played Delta Blues. So I was hearing a few people not really knowing who they were, right. but uh, you know, I listened to whatever I could listen to. Uh, but I did hear some you know, saxophone players in the New Orleans stuff and some, uh, some, some Memphis guys. Eventually, like the whole stack scene when you were probably oh, a teenager. Yeah. Oh, sure. Ironically, yeah. you'd be working with two of the biggest ones from them, but the Memphis horns were hot oh, yeah. then. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, well, Rufus Thomas was just kind of starting out there when, when I was starting to listen to radio. And, yep. uh, and all those guys will tell you that he really started the, the Memphis sound. I got to play with him at the uh, Pistoia Blues Festival in Italy uh, with the with the Blues Brothers Band, 1989. It was a big uh, big deal for me. Well, I am interested in one thing. You've gone to many schools, many colleges, and you paid your way through college by contracting for some of the bigger name bands out there. Can you explain that yes. a little bit? Well, uh, I, when I was I went to school in Hattiesburg for a couple of years, University of Southern Mississippi. I played in the marching band on tuba on a scholarship, and I played uh, in the jazz band. So, spring of 1967, we went to the Mobile Jazz Festival. And I met Lou Marini, who was there with the North Texas State Band. Yeah. He said, man, you should really transfer to North Texas. So I did. Now, when I was in Hattiesburg, I played a gig with Warren Covington and the Tommy Dorsey Band. And what it really was, Warren Covington came down with, from New York, brought his music and brought his uh, mink bow ties for the guys to wear and jackets. <laughs> and and it, we were supposed to pretend we were a road band, but we were, it was really just a one-night shot. Right. The contractor was an older trombone player from Jackson, Mississippi. I played this gig, and when the gig was over, Warren Covington says to me, this old guy, he can't play shit. Pardon my French. Yeah, no problem. So he says, I like the way you play, kid. He says, next time I come down here, I'll bet you could get me a really good band, couldn't you? And I said, yes, I can. So I gave him my business card. Mm. Uh, so he called me up, and I got him a really good band next time he came down. I called him up when I got to North Texas State, and I said, Warren, I'm, I'm in Denton, Texas. Uh, there are a lot of great musicians here. If you ever need anything, he says, you'll be my contractor. And he gave my name to a lot of people in New York. So anybody, anytime a big band came to Denton, they called me to get a band together for them. And this was very fortunate for me because I had no money. Right. Uh, I got a call from Motown one day. Somebody had given them my name. We're going to do a mini tour. It was uh, Dallas, Shreveport, and Houston. It was uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Supremes, and the Temptations. I hired 13 horn players, and they brought a rhythm section from Detroit. And this changed the rest of my life. This, I just, uh, this music just really got to me. Sure. Uh, this led to uh, uh, working with uh, Marvin Gaye, and uh, I ended up contracting a horn section for Little Stevie Wonder when he was 16. Uh, it was Albuquerque in El Paso, Texas. Yeah. Uh, and Stevie and I just hit it off somehow. He just, he liked me, and... Uh, 
At the time, he was recording music that was written by the Motown staff writers. Right. And he says, man, I'm writing my own songs. You want to hear them? He had a portable cassette and a good pair of headphones, and he put them on me, and I started listening to this music, and it just knocked me out. Wow. And I said, who played on this? He says, I played everything. Oh, my God. That gave me confidence that I could play everything, too. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the way uh, the, the evolution of thought works. And I got to play with Stevie many times in, in, in my career. Matter yeah. of fact, I said, uh, Stevie, I'm moving to New York next month. He says, great. He says, I'll be at the Copacabana uh, such and such dates. He said, come by the backstage. I'll introduce you to my contractor in New York. And ended up getting to play with Stevie on The Letterman Show, mm. on the uh, on Saturday Night Live, uh, TV specials on the White House lawn. Just amazing guy. Uh, and he always remembered me when I would see him down the road. He'd always remember me. Stevie, I'm the trumpet player from uh, Albuquerque, and he always remembers me. Last time I played with him was on The Letterman Show, and uh, I, I did a horn arrangement on I Wish. And we played the song, and I ran into him in the elevator going up to the dressing room. So I said, Stevie, it's Tom, the trumpet player from Albuquerque. He says, it's nice to see you. <laughs> the hot shit, huh? Oh, yeah. 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 What, a, what a great guy. And a genius. I wish he was more omnipresent now. Yes. He's not getting the due that he certainly deserves as a living legend. I couldn't agree more. Working with people so diverse, there's got to be a learning curve. Yes. I started arranging music when I was about 13. I was listening to a lot of records, and I just wanted to know what made them tick. A song would catch my ear, so I would, starting from about age 13, I would write down the notes and write down the arrangement. So when I went to college, I took a course called Music Theory, first semester. I already knew all the stuff. I answered all the questions for a couple of weeks, and the, and the teacher takes me out in the hall, and he says, you don't have to come to class anymore. You get an A. <laughs> yeah. I want the rest of the class to get involved in some of the questions and answers. So uh, that, I eventually changed my uh, major to psychology, and I ended up getting a degree at North Texas State in psychology. Hmm. It comes in handy when you're dealing with musicians. Of course. Ah. Of course. And, and the general public, too. Absolutely. So at North Texas, uh, we, you know, we, I played in the jazz bands there, but I always loved rock and roll from playing in rock and roll in high school. I had an unusual experience when I was still in Mississippi, by the way, an unusual experience that nobody else had. My dad and a friend of his took me to a nightclub when I was about 17. I wasn't old enough to drink a beer, but they took me along anyway. It was a very segregated society in Mississippi at the time, 1965. Right. Uh, so it was a white club with a black band. You know, back then you had black bands and white bands, but you didn't have integrated bands or integrated clubs. Right. Anyway, I heard this band called Terry Leggett and the Jewels of Swing, just a killing rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. I'd been playing with high school kids. These guys were adults, and they really had it down. The tenor player worked at the post office during the week, sounded like Fathead Newman. Anyway, it kind of blew my mind. Two weeks later, I go into Hattiesburg to the music store to get my trombone repaired, and they have a new repairman, and it's Terry Leggett, the leader of this band, the drummer. He could play drums or bass. It didn't matter. If you couldn't find a good bass player, he'd hire a drummer, and he'd play bass. But anyway, we started talking about music, and we liked all the same music. I told him I arranged music, and he said, you know, my band could learn these new songs a lot faster if we had a chart. He said, you want to write us a chart on uh, Summertime by Billy Stewart? That was a new hit record that week. <laughs> So I wrote down an arrangement, and I showed up to rehearsal, hit it off with all these guys, had a great time. 
I did another arrangement for them. And then Terry calls me up one day and he says, one of my horn players has to lead music at his church for a revival for the whole week between Christmas and New Year's. He says, I've, I'm, I'm working every night. He says, you want to play with my band? And I said, sure. Uh, I played with this, Terry's band for a whole week and just loved it. Got along with everybody. No problems. The clubs we played were so far in the ghetto that there was no white people to cause any trouble. So mm -hmm. everything just worked out fine. And yeah. I came to have a, a realization about racism, uh, kind of an inside experience that nobody else had. Sure. Uh, I realized that I had to get out of Mississippi in order to do what I wanted to do because I wanted to play with Ray Charles and James Brown and right, Stevie right, Wonder. Right. And uh, I eventually did. You're talking a lot about live gigs, but you also did a lot of recording. Was your first major label recording a heavy exposure by Woody Herman? That was, that was the first, uh, that was indeed the first recording that I played on. We went in the studio at Chess Records in Chicago. I remember Bob Burgess was the lead trombone player and we rehearsed this one song a couple of times and now we're ready to do a take and Bob had played the solo during the two rehearsals and he just says, you play the solo. So that there's a trombone solo on the record that I, I did not get credit for. Yeah, I, I did enjoy being in the studio. You know what track that was by any uh, You know, I don't really, I have to find that record and uh, figure it out. Okay. I have to listen to it. Moved to New York, started doing some live gigs. Where did you move? January 1970. Okay. Got called up for the draft, and uh, I was ready to go. I, I had a letter in my pocket that was going to get me into the NORAD dance band in uh, <laughs> Colorado Springs. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I had an asthma attack at the physical, oh. and they gave me a 4F or something. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah so, the timing was perfect. Yeah, yeah. so then I, like, the next day, decided I was going to move to New York, and I called up my friend Bob Burgess, who had, I'd played with on Woody Herman's band, you know, the famous lead trombone player that had played with everybody, right. you know, Stan Kenton, uh, Maynard Ferguson, Buddy Rich. I called him up and said, Bob, can I come up to New York and crash on your floor? And he said, yeah, come on up. So I did. I just uh, gave my car away, checked my instruments, threw away most of my clothes, and just got on the plane and moved to New York just like that. Bang. Started over. Boom. Started yeah. all over, yeah. yeah. You know, because I was doing very well there around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and uh, I just started, totally started over. I would cook brown rice in an electric frying pan. The, the apartment didn't have a kitchen. It was kind of like a room and a half with a bathroom, and that was about it. Anyway, it was a cheap apartment. Uh, Bob Burgess went back on the road with Woody Herman, and I inherited this cheap apartment. But when Bob was still in town, we went to Jim and Andy's, which was a, a musician bar where guys would hang out between recording sessions. And he introduces me to a guy named Bob Pearson. He says, Bob, this is Tom Malone. He said, Tom Malone is a, is, a, is a good trombone player. And the guy didn't even act like he didn't even care. And he said, he's also a good bass trombone player. And the guy lit up like a candle. And he said, give me your phone number. So I gave him my business card. And the next day he called me to play bass trombone at the Waldorf Astoria six nights a week. They did two shows a night. 
of uh, sort of like uh, Las Vegas style shows, like Shirley Bassey and yeah. uh, Sonny and Cher, yeah. that sort of thing. So the house band played from seven to one. They played a dinner dance, played a show at around eight, and they played dinner dance, and then they ran a uh, uh, ran the audience out and ran in a new audience, and starting around ten, and then the show at eleven. And the uh, I just had to show up for to play the two shows, which are an hour long each. Yeah. Uh, for the same money. So I felt like uh, I really that was a really great gig for me. And finally, I could had a little bit of money anyway. My name started getting around town as yeah. a bass trombone player. And a guy named Alan Raff started sending me to sub for him wherever, because he, he was busy all the time. He was doing a Broadway show and he did recording sessions. And he would take anything that came in. And if he had two gigs at the same time, he would send me to one of them. One of them was Vicky Sue Robinson turned the beat around. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I saw you were credited on that. I'm the bass trombone player on yeah. that. That was one of Alan Raff's throwaways. Lou Marini moved to moved to New York in 1971, and he came to town with a gig. He was playing with Doc Severinsen's weekend band. Uh, they played every Saturday and Sunday someplace in the United States, and uh, it was a ten-piece band, uh, four rhythm and six horns, with guys from the Tonight Show band. Sure, and, and that was a decent-paying gig too. Like uh, I think it was two hundred fifty dollars for days. each gig, yeah. and that was a lot of money in 1971. Yeah, so now you know I could afford an apartment. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so during the year 1971, The Tonight Show moved from New York to Los Angeles. The weekend band continued to play because we just went to the airport and went to wherever they told us to. Right. Uh, and one night we found ourselves in Los Angeles as the guest artists. You know, the weekend, Doc's weekend band was the guest artist on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in Los Angeles. And yeah. we played Beginnings by Chicago. So I played a trombone solo on national TV. Wow. That yeah, was kind of a thrill. So we go back to the hotel that's in Burbank near NBC Studios. Yeah. Uh, Lou Marini is my roommate, and Sal Marquez comes over to the room. He's a jazz trumpet player that's best known as being Branford Marsalis's trumpet player on the Jay Leno show after yeah. Johnny retired. Yeah. Anyway, so Sal comes over to the room, and we say, well, Sal, what's going on? What are you doing in LA? He says, I'm playing with Frank Zappa's Grand Wazoo. I said, what is that? He says, it's a 20-piece it's a band, all instrumental music. I'm like, Wow. He says, our tuba player, Howard Johnson, is moving back to New York. We're looking for a tuba player. Do you know anybody that plays tuba? And about that time, he trips over my tuba that's on the floor in the <laughs> hotel room. And he, I was playing trombone, bass trombone, and tuba with Doc Severinsen's weekend band. So he, he says, uh, you play tuba, don't you, Tom? And I said, yeah. So he says, uh, you want to play with Frank? And I said, sure. So he calls up Frank from the hotel room phone. And he's talking to him. Yeah, I know this guy, Frank, blah, blah, blah. Frank obviously asked him how I sounded on the tuba. Sal says, well, Frank, I've never heard him play the tuba. Tom, how do you sound on the tuba? I picked up the tuba and played it over the telephone, and Frank hired me. An audition over the phone. On a tuba. On a tuba. Wow. So we go over to Frank's house the next day, and uh, Frank says, Sal tells me you play some other instruments besides a tuba. And I said, yes. He says, well, give me a list. So I put down bass trombone, trombone, trumpet, flugelhorn, piccolo trumpet, tenor sax, flute, and piccolo. The rehearsal started three weeks later, and, and he, he did Tuesday and Thursday rehearsals with the Grand Wazoo uh, for two weeks. And 
I was playing with Doc at the Sands in Las Vegas. So I commuted from Las Vegas to Los Angeles to make these rehearsals. Oh, That's four, yeah. four round trip flights wow. while I was doing the two nights with Doc. So I show up at the first rehearsal and Frank has rearranged the music so I have a part on every instrument on the list. So we did the tour. We did the Hollywood Bowl, Boston Symphony Hall, London, Berlin, Rotterdam, all over the place. We get back to LA and Frank says, next tour is going to be a 12-piece band and I want you to be in it, Tom. So I was like tenor sax soloist and all kinds of stuff, playing a bunch of instruments again. Now, this isn't the Flo and Eddie thing he was doing. Uh, Flo, Flo and Eddie was before the Grand Wazoo. Okay, okay. Uh, the Grand Wazoo was all instrumental. So now it, he called it the Mothers of Invention, the 12-piece band, and we played some cut-down versions of his instrumental music, and yeah. we played some Frank Zappa stuff. Right. Matter of fact, we, were, uh, we played University of Pennsylvania, and it was snow on the ground. And we got off the bus, and there was a fire hydrant with snow around it, and yellow streaks. I know where this is and going. Frank, during the sound check, Frank wrote, don't eat the yellow snow. Yeah. Yeah. Frank was a piece of work. So anyway, the tour's over. We go back to LA and Frank says, next tour is going to be a six-piece band. It's going to be Bruce Fowler. It's going to be the only horn. And I said, cool. Frank says, uh, Bruce tells me you play electric bass. And I said, yes. He said, do you want to audition? I said, sure. So I went over to Frank's house and auditioned on Fender Bass. And a couple of weeks go by. I don't hear anything from Frank. I hear through the grapevine that Frank is uh, auditioning other players, guys that played with him before, guys that played and sing. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I call Frank. You leave a message on his phone. Frank, this is Tom. Just uh, what's happening? Let me give me a call. Nothing. Another week goes by. I get a call from Lou Marini in New York. He's playing with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He says our trumpet player uh, is leaving the band. Can you be in New York tomorrow? And I said sure. So I gave my car away, uh, checked my horns on the plane, and moved to New York. Moved back to New York, actually. The day I left, Frank called to say I had the gig oh. playing bass with Jean-Luc Ponty and George Duke. Three tours of Europe and a tour of Japan for double the money that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was going to pay me. Oh. Anyway, I was gone, and uh, I never looked back. Yeah. I recommended Tom Fowler, who was Bruce Fowler's brother, to play electric bass with Frank. And he played with Frank for three or four years. Frank loved him. He sounded great with Frank. Mm. So... You know, that's the way you do it in the professional world. If you can't do something, you send somebody that is competent to replace you. That's a great lesson right there. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that because I know you're on the Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, No Sweat. Yes. And I noticed, I think it's a Back Up Against the Wall. Yes. You're playing bass on that. That surprised that's me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One night we played in uh, Cape Cod with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and uh, our bass player, Jim Fielder, didn't make the gig. He got sick. And so I was the bass player that night. I knew all the songs because that was some of the most progressive bass lines in music at that time. So I had shedded those parts and uh, it paid off. I was teetering up and down the highway till they called me with a heavy load. They sent us me to hard labor. player named Hannibal Marvin Peterson was a, a soul singer and a jazz trumpet player at North Texas State. He calls me up and he says, I want to move to New York. Can I crash on your floor? And I said, yeah, Marvin, come on up. Marvin came up and he immediately started working with Rassan Roland Kirk, the guy that played three saxophones at the same time. 
And he also started playing with Gil Evans. So one night he says, I got two gigs tonight. The gig with Gil Evans doesn't pay any money. You want to cover for me on trumpet? And I said, sure. So I met all these people that changed the rest of my life that night. Wow. Uh, David Sanborn, uh, Billy Harper, uh, Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson, uh, he liked me because I played tuba and played a lot of different instruments like he did. A few years later, they asked Howard to put a horn section together for a new TV show called Saturday Night Live. So he put me in the band. I, I started in the fall. It was uh, October 3rd, 1975 was the first show at, at uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. And I became the arranger for the show since I had arranged for uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears and done, done some other arranging. I talked my way into being the arranger. So March or April, 1978, I got a call from the music director, Howard Shore. He says, uh, can you meet with Danny and John in John's office at two o'clock on Monday? I said, sure. And when I say John and Danny, I mean John Belushi. Of course. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. Right. So they have this idea of these two characters that wear sunglasses day and night, and they're kind of ne'er-do-well blues musicians. So uh, I wrote an arrangement of a song called Rocket 88 by James Cotton. And we rehearsed the Saturday Night Live band, and we did the song for Lauren Michaels. Well, we didn't make the show. Lauren did not select us to be huh. on the air. So next week, John and Danny are still hot about the Blues Brothers, so they uh, they asked me to write an arrangement of a song called "Hey Bartender." So I wrote the arrangement. We rehearsed the band, and we did it for Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels said, "Frankly, I don't see anything funny about the Blues Brothers." So second week in a row, we got shot down. The third week, John and Danny figured, well, if we're not going to get this thing on, if Lauren doesn't like it, we might as well move on to something else. Right. So after read-through, about this is about 3.15 on Wednesday, uh, Lauren, Lauren comes out of read-through and he says, the show's three minutes short. What are we going to do? John and Danny jump on him and they say, Lauren, the Blues Brothers. Lauren said, well, we have nothing worthwhile to put in those three minutes. You guys might as well make fools of yourselves. He put us on. Now, this is way before cell phones and internet and stuff oh, yeah. like that. But... Uh, Monday, the switchboard lit up with phone calls, and letters and cards started pouring in from the viewing audience, and obviously the Blues Brothers were a hit. Okay, I want to introduce the horn section to you right now. On the trombone, the slide trombone, Mr. Tom Bones Malone, goddammit! <laughs> We did uh, uh, a couple more performances with the Saturday Night Live band, and then John decided he wanted to make a separate band from Saturday Night Live. He wanted to have a band that was called the Blues Brothers Band. Yeah. Now, b backing up a little bit uh, in the storyline, 1976, this is a couple of years before the Blues Brothers, 1976, this group called The Band comes on the show, and I love them. Uh, and uh, the music director asked me to write some horn charts for some of their songs, so I did. Lou Marini, Alan Rubin, Howard Johnson, and I were the horn section on some songs for them. 
Anyway, I hit it off with all the guys in the band, and they loved the horn section. And they took me on tour in the summer of 76 in their horn section, and I did some horn arranging for them too. Uh, in the fall of 76, we played a live gig that was filmed by Martin Sarsese in uh, San Francisco, and that, that became the movie The Last Waltz. It didn't come out till 78, but uh, it was indeed uh, Thanksgiving 76. Fast forward to New Year's Eve, 1978, in San Francisco. It's uh, the New Riders of the Purple Sage, the Blues Brothers, and the Grateful Dead. Uh, when we were putting the band together, John Belushi picked Paul Schaefer, Steve Jordan, myself, and Lou Marini to be in the band. I was going to be the horn arranger, and he said, if I needed another horn to make the section sound right, it was up to me. So I hired Alan Rubin. And they were looking for a bass player and a guitar player, and I recommended Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn, because they had been in this band with... Uh, with me and Lou, uh, with uh, Levon Helm. John says, well, now we have a Matt Guitar Murphy and a Donald Duck Dunn, so everybody has to have a middle name. <laughs> so uh, I said, I just, right off the top of my head, uh, I had had a, a nickname from high school, Tom Bones Malone. So I said, how about Tom Bones Malone? And John says, that's it. Lou Marini says, how about Blue Lou Marini? Bang, that's it. And John says, well, if you can't come up with a name yourself, we'll make one up for you. So he came up with Alan, Mr. Fabulous Rubin, and uh, Steve, the Colonel Cropper, and uh, and on and on and on. Yep. So we formed this band that was the Blues Brothers Band. And our first gig was opening act for Steve Martin at Carnegie Hall. Who says you don't start at the top? <laughs> uh, so we got a recording contract with Atlantic Records, and we went to the, the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles, in Universal City, which was an outdoor venue at the time. 
And we recorded nine nights, and our producer-engineer, Bob Tischler, edited our first album called Briefcase Full of Blues. A classic. Yes. Little known fact, um, Bob Hope was one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood of all time. Mm -hmm. He owned Universal City. He owned all the property that Universal City was built on. Really? He, uh, Universal Pictures rented from Bob Hope. Oh. Universal Backlot wow. rented from Bob Hope. Universal Amphitheater rented from Bob Hope. Universal Hilton rented from Bob Hope. Universal Sheraton rented from Bob Hope. The whole thing. Bob Hope's backyard went all the way to the bottom of the hill below the uh, Universal Amphitheater. I'm not sure how big his backyard was, but he had a four-hill golf course in the backyard. That's pretty big. Yeah. So uh, during one of the gigs, our producer-engineer, Bob Tischler, gets a call. This is Bob. Can you turn it down a little? <laughs> True story. So uh, anyway, Briefcase Full of Blues sold three million albums right off the top. Hit single on Soul Man. And after that success, Dan Aykroyd started writing a script for a movie. And he interviewed all of us to get material. I told him stories about playing in sleazy clubs in Mississippi where they had chicken wire over the bandstand so that the band didn't get injured if they started throwing stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, he put that in the movie. Anyway, I guess the rest is kind of history. Uh, that was uh, that movie was um, forty years ago. Now Steve Jordan did not. Steve Jordan turned it down. Yep. And Paul Schaefer turned it down. Yeah. Paul was working on the uh, Gilda Radner Broadway show, and I was supposed to be in that too. But I went for the movie. I went for the Blues Brothers movie, and Paul stayed in New York. There's got to be anecdotes from that crazy things that have happened on the filming. Oh, it was it was beyond crazy. You wouldn't believe. Oh. Man, I, uh, night shoots, and uh, jo John would uh, get flustered with his lines sometimes, and we would just die laughing. Cause, you know, he would when he was he would miss his lines, and it was just always funny. It was always, uh, it was yeah, it, it, <laughs> it was a barrel of monkeys. Oh my god. Uh, the the Blues Brothers uh, movie, and you know, we did a tour to promote the movie in May of June, nineteen eighty. Uh, anyway, so that thing sort of cooled off. Uh, I think it was 1982, I get a phone call from Liz Anderson. Liz Anderson uh, worked in the production office downstairs, and she filled out my union contracts every week for the show. I was the contractor. So she calls me up and says, I got a new job. And I'm like, congratulations, what is your new job? She says, I'm the associate producer of the David Letterman show. And I said, what is a David Letterman show? She says, you've never seen it. It comes on real, real early in the morning, but we're going to change the show to late night. 
Mm. And we're looking for a band leader. And I just wonder if you might be interested. We need someone to lead a four-piece band and be a personality. And I said, well, I'd really like to do it. But, you know, as you may know, I'm getting compensated very well here. Uh, she says, well, can you recommend someone? I said, yes. Now, Paul Schaefer had gone out to Los Angeles to do a TV series called A Year at the Top with Greg Avigan. They did about five or six episodes. The network pulled the plug. Mm -hmm. Paul came back to New York about two weeks before this phone call. I said to Liz Anderson, I said, you should call this kid Paul Schaefer. And I gave her the phone number. So uh, I, I didn't hear anything for about three or four weeks. And uh, I'm up in my office. I had a corner office in the 17th floor at 30 Rock. I had a network feed monitor in the corner of my office. And suddenly there's a band playing on the network feed monitor. And I look over there and it's Paul Schaefer, Will Lee, Steve Jordan, and Hiram Bullock. Paul got the gig and I didn't even know it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Paul never knew that I was the one that got in the gig. But I did tell, after he hired me to be in the band at CBS, yep. I told him the story. Had you ever played on the NBC show at all, backing up somebody? Or? Uh, well, let's see. Yeah, I did. I was. I did guest uh, a, a couple of times. Yep. There, because it was in the same building. You know, it was uh, right. two floors below Saturday Night Live. Right, so right. Uh, I was down there a couple of times, and uh, yeah, I, I was part of the guest horn section on a couple of uh, occasions. Walk me through an average day with Letterman. Uh, average day, we would get there about two forty-five, do a do a rehearsal, sound check, uh, and then the guest band. Sometimes we backed up the guest band. Sometimes some of us jumped into the guest band. You know, every day was different. And then uh, changed clothes and warmed up the audience with a few songs. Dave would come out and do a couple of minutes uh, patter with the audience. And during this patter, Dave would show that he was really intelligent and really studied. He would just randomly pick somebody in the audience. You know, said. Uh, who has a question? First person to raise their hand, he calls them out. And they would say, oh, oh, what's your name? Blah, blah, blah. Well, where are you from? Indianapolis. And he'd start rattling off the the, the sports teams. And, yeah. the, you know, he, he knew everything about everything. And, uh, of course, on the show itself, you know, he was always trying to play a sort of a dumb character. No. The man was highly intelligent and highly educated, too. Now, Dave did not interview people before they came on stage. Uh, he would have somebody in his staff interview the person. Because basically what Dave did was improvise with the guest. Anyway, what, somebody in his staff would interview the person before the show, and he would, they would give Dave a list of three or four places that he could go if he couldn't get it started on his own. So if you ever heard Dave say, uh, tell me about your vacation to the desert mm. last summer, mm. you know, that means he's reading off the list. Right. But in most cases, he just made it improvised, and uh, it, it, he was just amazing the way he did stuff. Sure. You never knew what was going to happen on the show. They would, Sometimes Dave would just go out the door, and they would send a remote camera behind him, and he'd go out and start talking to people on the street. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, I think kind of like a la Steve Allen. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he could always make something happen from nothing. One day, they send a remote camera down to 48th Street, and the remote camera goes into Sam Ash Music. And uh, there's a kid with a trumpet case over his shoulder in the store. And they walk up to him and they say, you want to sit in with a Letterman show? And the kid says, when? And they said, right now. <laughs> kid runs out of the store. Wow. So, so they find a, another kid with a tenor sax over his shoulder. They, hey, you want, you want to sit in with a Letterman show? And he says, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, right now. Come on. He, he freaked out and ran away. Oh. So <laughs> now, that, now, now they, they talk to this girl that's behind the counter, you know? Uh, are you a musician? Yes. What do you play? Alto sax. You got your horn with you? Yes. You want to sit in with the Letterman show? When? Right now. Sure. So now the camera's following her up the street. And uh, she walks on the bandstand and Paul says, well, 
What songs do you know? She says, well, I don't really know any songs, but if you write them out, I can certainly read them. How about Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder? So I figure out what key she should do it in, and I start writing out her part, and uh, you know, the ink is still wet when uh, I give her the part, and we count it off. Did the whole show like that. And that could have gone south easily. Oh, oh my God, yeah. Job of an arranger is uh, uh, sometimes taken for granted. Uh, I was the arranger on a show called uh, Atlantic Records 40th Anniversary TV uh, Special. Great show. I remember that. Yep. It, it was the live show started at 10 in the morning and went until 2.30 in the morning. It was 14 and a half hours live concert. Yep. On cable, on cable, and uh, I just um, saw the edited one. Yeah, they, well, there was a two-hour edited That's one on the CBS one. Yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Led Zeppelin and it, reunited, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin closed the show with um, Jason Bonham. Jason Bonham. Yep. They had not performed for five, six years before that. Right. And uh, they just, of course, I was always a huge fan of theirs, so that that really knocked me out. So ten in the morning, I show up with thirty arrangements for the show. You know, we're the house band. We're backing up everybody. We had two rhythm sections. We had the Blues Brothers rhythm section, and we had the Letterman rhythm section. Right. And we had the horn section was uh, Lou Marini, Alan Rubin, Tom Scott, and myself. So we we were on every anything that had horns, we were the horn section. So I showed up with thirty arrangements at ten o'clock, and the show starts, and we 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 do a do a song with some artist, and go back to the dressing room, and uh, Ahmed Erdogan comes in, and he says. Uh, uh, no concert of Atlantic Records would be complete without Bobby Darin being represented with his Turkish accent. Mm. So uh, I said, uh, Mac the Knife. And uh, oh, who was the guy? There's a guy with the Manhattan Transfer. Tim. Tim from Manhattan Transfer is in the room. He says, I know the song. So I had brought some score paper with me. I started writing a score and they called a copyist, music copyist, to come in. This is before the computer thing. And uh, bang, we walked on stage and did the whole song without rehearsing. Wow. And uh, so uh, about 11.30 in the morning, I'm walking down the hall and I run into Trevor Rabin. Trevor Rabin's a guitar player with a group called Yes. Yeah, yeah. You guys on the show today? So, yeah. What song are you going to play? Owner of a Lonely Heart. I said, wouldn't it be great if you had a live horn section to play those samples in the middle of the song? From, there's a sample from a James Brown record or something. Right. That's right in the, and I, and, and he, he lit up and he said, yeah, man, can you pull that off? And I said, sure. So I went to the room and wrote out the parts and we, the horn section, walked on stage and- like you didn't have enough to do that day. Yeah, right. So I, You're I, wrote, for I wrote two arrangements after the show started. That's fantastic. <laughs> COVID has stopped everything, but doesn't seem like it stopped you. You've been busier than no. ever. Well, I've been making my own music. I'm working on my own album. I sent you a couple things. Yeah, and uh, and I've also been doing production work for people all over the world. I've been doing South Africa, Amsterdam, Los Angeles, Cleveland, Arizona. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can I can do anything here by myself. Something that I would can, have been unheard of forty years ago. I can make a rhythm section. I make a, a big band. I can make a tight rock horn section. Sure. I can arrange strings. And uh, guy sent me a recording of him singing a song and playing guitar. And I turned it into a record. I put on drums, bass, piano, strings, horns. You know, turned it into a complete record. So you're definitely staying busy. And I heard a rumor you might be writing a book. I'm definitely writing a book. Working title is Name Dropper. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Well, I, I've worked with so many different <laughs> yes, people uh, over the years. You know, uh, Tony Bennett, Village People, uh, Barry Manilow. Uh, McCartney. I played on Paul McCartney's. Was that uh, uh, Egypt Station, most, right? Egypt Station, his most recent album. Yeah, yes. Yep, it, yep. I was, I was an honorary member of the Muscle Shoals Horns. Did that in Los Angeles. Great. How is he to work with? He is a class act. I understand why they call him Sir Paul McCartney, because he was so friendly and just down to earth with us, just kind of small talk and mm. uh, uh, just uh, 
just a lovely guy. All those years in New York, did you ever bump into John Lennon at all? Uh, I never, I never got to bump into John Lennon. Mm -hmm. No, unfortunately, I did yeah. not. Uh, but when Ringo Starr was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, as you may know, Paul Schaefer's band was the house band for the Rock and Roll Hall sure, of Fame Awards yeah, for yeah. maybe 25 years. Right. And uh, so Paul McCartney came in to give him the award. So it was a lot of fun to get to arrange and play with him. During the sound check for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I, I listened carefully to Ringo and he played a lot of different beats. And you know, he gets trashed a lot. You know, people, oh, he's not very good. Oh, I thought he was great. And to get to play with him was just an honor. And he was also very friendly. I don't know why he gets trashed. He is an innovator. Absolutely. He's my, he means my hero. And yeah. uh, it's, easy yes. to, it's easy to say, well, I could play that beat. But if somebody brought you a day in a life, would you have put that beat to it? I might have overplayed. He yeah. doesn't. So, yeah. You know, so that, I mean, that's, I hate that small mindedness. Well, I got, I got a new appreciation for the uh, Beatles music. I played with a band, a New York band called the Fab Foe. That's Will Lee, right? For 18 years. Yes, yeah. Will Lee, J Jimmy Vivino, who was the band leader at Conan. the Conan show. Yeah. And, uh, um, some really talented guys in that band. And the, uh, the material they do is, sounds exactly like yeah. the Beatles, note for note, like yeah. the horn parts, everything we did, everything just exactly. Are you ready, Paul? Yes. On this date in 1964, the Beatles made their U.S. television debut here on the stage of the Ed Sullivan Theater. And to mark that occasion, we're pleased to present tonight the Fab Foe. Six 
right there with my favorite Beatles song I Am the Walrus and I want to thank the master of brass himself Tom Bones Malone for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm sure it comes through in his interview but I have to say he's a true professional every sense of the word and he's a true gentleman. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did please leave a nice five star review over at iTunes check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's only rock and roll podcast all spelled out and if you really want to support the show Buy an album of one of the artists we cover here, especially if you don't already own any of their work, because that's really what it's all about. And hey, why not start off with your humble host's own band, Black and White, by visiting blackandwhitebandcom Hell, what's the point of having a show if I can't blatantly self-promote? Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Now get the hell off my lawn. I've been down so long, I can't get up. I've been crying since I drove you way, way. I've been down before, but this is hurting me bad And I don't want to end it this way All of my life, I tried so hard To never do nobody no wrong It's hard to believe that something so right Could ever turn out so wrong I've down before
gonna end it this way All of my life I tried so hard To never do no bad or no wrong The harder I try The more I realize I just can't make it alone I've down before Oh, oh, oh.